Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Today we begin a new sermon series rooted in two books that are in truth just two parts of a single unified story. Coming out of the Old Testament, the focus of this series, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, were written originally in Hebrew as part of one half of a much larger unified book that also included 1st and 2nd Kings. So 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, and they were all one book. And when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Greek language, this very big story known back then as kingdoms was split into four parts or four separate books of the Bible like we have them today. Now, again, our focus for this next year, with some breaks along the way for Holy Week and the summer, is going to be the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, many people, believers and non-believers alike, are well acquainted with various episodes from within the pages of these books. Um, I mean, there are famous paintings, classic movies, several analogies in our everyday language that have been derived from selected excerpts of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And yet, few people know the whole story that these books together purpose to tell. Both 1st and 2nd Samuel tell the story of how Israel went from a loose association of 12 tribes to become a unified monarchy, one nation under God led by kings. By the leading and insight of the Holy Spirit, I believe there is much for us to learn as we move chapter by chapter and story by story through 1st and 2nd Samuel over these next few months, especially much for us to learn in the times in which we find ourselves, and certainly in the aftermath of the appalling and disturbing events of this past week in our nation's capital. Because one of the overriding themes of this wider narrative is that character counts. However, as we'll soon discover, contrary to how the more famous episodes of these two books tend to be framed, there are no human heroes in these stories. There is no one whom we will encounter that we ought to view as some sort of spiritual role model. Rather, in the life of each person we will follow, As we witness a mixture of both good and evil in their intentions, as well as great success and devastating failure in their actions, we will see a reflection of ourselves, of our own familiar flaws and brokenness due to sin. Let's be clear from the outset. The hero of all these stories is the same hero of all scripture, our creator, our rescuer, and our redeemer. The character that counts that is revealed in 1st and 2nd Samuel is the character of God. It's important we don't forget or overlook this. Because as Christians, we read and reflect on this story to understand what happens when we reject God as our King, as our one and only Lord and Savior, and what happens when we put our saving faith instead in any other leader. You see, 1st and 2nd Samuel doesn't just unfold how Israel became a monarchy. More importantly, It tells us why that monarchy failed and how Israel's failure ultimately points us to our absolute need for Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who rules with love and justice by way of mercy, grace, and truth. This series is going to be an insightful, sometimes challenging, but always edifying journey in our growth as followers of Jesus and in our shared witness together as the church, I promise you. One final word though, before we begin. For this sermon series, 
we're going to be moving from story to story within first and second Samuel. And that means that each week we're going to be looking at a larger passage of scripture than will be read as part of the message for the day. So all that means is this. After the scripture is read each week, I want you to keep your Bibles open during the sermon because what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack not just what we heard, but the whole story that we're looking at for the week. In this case, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 11, a story about a woman named Hannah. So let's dive in by hearing the opening to this story from 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll be hearing verses 1 through 11. We are reading this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroboam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penana. Penana had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Panana and all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, he, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and she would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean... T- to you more than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The saga of the rise of the kings of Israel begins in a surprising way, with the story of a family, a family that, as we heard, is very dysfunctional. We're first introduced to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah lives in the backwaters of the hill country of Ephraim. Elkanah is a devout man because year after year we're told that he and his family would make the journey up to Shiloh, what's about a 15-mile, roughly two-day journey, to worship and sacrifice before the presence of the Lord. Now, a little bit of background here. Shiloh has been the site of God's presence in what is known as the Tent of Meeting, that portable tabernacle that later becomes the temple, you know, that contains the Ark of the Covenant. It's been there in Shiloh since Joshua first led the Israelites into the promised land of Canaan. Elkanah is a husband who also has two wives, Hannah and Panah. 
The fact that Hannah is listed first probably indicates she was Elkanah's first wife. And the likely reason why Elkanah ended up with his second wife, Peninnah, is indicated by the ongoing difficulty Hannah has been facing in that she has been unable to bear any children. Infertility is a very painful reality to endure for anyone wanting to have children. And I recognize some watching today may have or may be struggling with an inability to get pregnant. And as much as words are insufficient, I want to recognize anyone facing such a devastating hardship for whom this story hits a little too close to home. I also want to acknowledge that while some women have their story parallel Hannah's journey here, not all women have or will. Therefore, let us lament and pray with all women who are still waiting and hoping to conceive a child of their own. With this in mind, in Hannah's time and place, her childlessness was no less agonizing than it is today, but perhaps it was even more so, given her culture was one that especially prized children. Back then, the addition of children once grown added to the workforce of a family, especially in an gregarian society. In the ancient world, having children were a couple's retirement plan. As elderly persons, they looked to their sons and daughters to care and provide for them when they could no longer do so for themselves. Furthermore, the addition of children to a family was also viewed as contributing to the growth of the nation in terms of its economy or, as needed, its military defense. All of this resulted tragically in the dignity and value of a woman back then being reduced to her capacity as a mother by how many children she had. In a patriarchal society where a woman's worth was linked to her ability to have children, Hannah was particularly vulnerable. Without any children of her own, she had no security for herself once her husband Elkanah died. And to add insult to injury, Any problem of infertility back then was primarily viewed to be a failure on the part of the wife and not the husband. The Torah, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, seemingly was clear, implying that faithfulness to the covenant relationship with God would lead to fruitfulness rather than barrenness. Therefore, in the eyes of the surrounding community, the fact that Hannah remained childless would be viewed as a divine curse presumed as resulting from some unconfessed or unresolved sin in her life. This leads to something that I want to point out as well. Because of this faulty interpretation of Scripture, of Deuteronomy that I just shared, the writer of this story assumes that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. However, I want you to see that nowhere does the Lord ever explicitly declare that he has done this intentionally, purposefully, or actively preventing Hannah from being able to conceive a child. Hannah's infertility could be for a variety of reasons, but none of them ought to be directly tied to the Lord's will or purpose. It's just not there. Now, in the ancient world, given how prized children were, persistent infertility was also viewed as a legitimate grounds for divorce. Elkanah, however, does not avail himself of this legal option. He loves Hannah, we're told, despite her inability to conceive a child. His love for Hannah, however, does not stop Elkanah from taking a second wife, Peninnah, a woman who has no trouble at all giving him both sons and daughters. Now, Elkanah tries to compensate for the presence of another woman in their home by openly favoring Hannah, and we're given a specific example of this favoritism. What we're told is each year when Elkanah took the whole family up to Shiloh to worship the Lord, he would give Hannah 
a double portion of the sacrifice. A little background here. We're used to thinking of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament as being primarily, we tend to only remember the ones given for atonement, for the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifices where everything was burned as holy to the Lord and nothing was consumed by humans. But in the laying out of all the worship details in the book of Exodus, there are other types of sacrifices. In particular, there is something known as the peace offering or fellowship sacrifice, a way of just saying thank you to God. In this case, portions of those sacrifices were consumed by the person offering the sacrifice and that person's family. So typically, each member of the family would receive one portion of the sacrifice. But in this instance, as we're told, Elkanah gives Panah and her children one portion each, but because he loves Hannah, he gives her a share of the offering beyond what she would normally expect. He clearly wants to honor her and in some way soften the reality that she's due only one portion because she has no children. However, Elkanah's favoritism towards Hannah only intensifies a pre-existing rivalry between his two wives. Resentful and probably jealous of Elkanah's affection towards Hannah, Peninnah is anything but gracious to her. Instead, she uses the power of her privileged position as a mother with children to taunt and torment Hannah for her barrenness. And so this went on, the scripture reads. Can you imagine that? So this went on year after year until one day we are told Hannah lost her appetite for anything but her own tears. As her well-meaning but clueless husband tries to console her with an appeal to romance by remarking, hey babe, at least you've got me. Isn't being married to me better than having 10 sons? Seriously? Hannah reaches her breaking point. She can no longer put on a happy face, eating and drinking in celebration for the fruitfulness of this past year's harvest when still, after all this time, her womb remains bare. Getting a little extra steak once a year means nothing to her when her hunger, her desire for a family of her own remains unsatisfied. Hannah is depressed, we're told. Hannah is downhearted. Hannah is bitter. Can we blame her? But instead of continuing to hold all of this inside, Hannah gets up and marches straight into the presence of the Lord. Her vulnerability, her frustration, her social status, the scorn of her community does not hold Hannah back. Hannah, in her deep distress, goes to the one and only court of appeal that she has, the highest one imaginable, as she lifts her eyes and her voice to heaven, crying out to the Lord. Hannah takes all of her bitterness, all her pain, all her hopes and dreams, and lays them at the feet of God. You know, still today, there persists this bad, harmful teaching within the church that asserts that one's anger or insistence before the Lord are obstacles to prayer. But as we observe Hannah in this moment, nothing could be farther from the truth. It's her desperation and her doggedness, her demand to be heard, her refusal to keep silent. That's what fuels the honesty, the focus, and the transparency of her conversation with God. As Hannah later describes her engagement with the Lord, what she is doing in this moment is pouring out her soul. This is the kind of rawness and boldness in prayer we hear in the complaint and lament songs in the book of Psalms laying everything on the line and offering it all up to God is the kind of praying 
Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no formality here. There's no pretense. There's no formula in these kind of conversations with the Lord. This is wrestling with God and refusing to let God go until he answers. This is simultaneously yielding and abiding in the Lord, giving everything up, whatever we think we've got, and receiving only what God can give. Hannah prays to be seen. Hannah prays to be remembered. Hannah asks for a son. However, Hannah not only asks for something from the Lord, she also promises something to God. She makes a vow that if God will bless her with a son, she will in turn give that son back to God to serve him. Her talk in this passage of no razor will touch her son's head is a reference to what was known as a Nazarite vow. Explained in more detail in Numbers chapter 6, the taking of such a vow was a way for one to commit to live a life of sacred separation and exclusive dedication to God. Samson, from the book of Judges, took a Nazarite vow. So did John the Baptist, we find in the Gospels. So did the Apostle Paul, we're told in the book of Acts. Nazarite vows usually were temporary commitments for a season of service to the Lord. But Hannah, however, has vowed to dedicate her yet-to-be-conceived son as the Lord's servant for his entire life. This is crucial because it clarifies something important here. Hannah's prayer was not a tit-for-tat. A bargain where if God gave her what she wanted, then she would give something to the Lord in return. No, Hannah's prayer reflects a shift in her focus. While she still absolutely longs to bear a child in her willing release of this child. Remember, nowhere, in the, nowhere here does the Lord ask or command her to take this vow. She, she does this on her own. In Hannah's willing release of this child, she is acknowledging that her ultimate fulfillment, her redemption, are not found in being able to have a child, but in her relationship with God. The Lord alone is her joy and her salvation. And this is further underscored by how she walks away from this moment, something that I'll address in just a second. But first, let's step back and realize that while this is all going on, Hannah is being watched. While she's praying, a priest named Eli, who's seated at the doorpost of the tabernacle, sees Hannah's mouth moving, but doesn't hear anything coming out of her mouth. Instead of recognizing Hannah's prayer from the heart, Eli, who we'll learn more about next week, Eli assumes she's drunk. And not being very pastoral, Eli harshly rebukes her and basically tells Hannah to move along. Now, in the patriarchal culture of Israel, remember, women were to be seen and not heard. More than this, in the pecking order of wider society, women were near the bottom, while priests were pretty close to the top. My point is that most women being challenged by another man, especially a priest, even if incorrectly assessed, would have remained quiet and deferential. But not Hannah. No, her boldness continues as she does not let Eli's rebuke pass without comment. And her response is perfect respectful of Eli's authority, while also setting him straight at the same time. She counters his accusation of having been drinking by telling him that she's actually pouring out her soul to the Lord. Hannah insists that she is not to be viewed as a worthless woman, but rather a deeply troubled woman who brings her deepest anxieties and pain right to the very person she should be addressing, our Father in heaven. 
Now, to Eli's credit, he does not ignore, but listens carefully to Hannah's impassioned response. And realizing he's made a mistake, Eli quickly reverses his position. Instead of rebuking Hannah, Eli offers her his peace and extends a prayer of blessing to her. Something interesting here, Hebrew grammarians say that Eli's statement to Hannah can either be read as a prayer for God to grant her petition or as a promise that, in fact, the Lord will answer. Whatever the case, Hannah finds great comfort in Eli's words. She leaves, no longer downcast. Upon returning back to her husband, Hannah now eats and drinks with Elkanah and the rest of the community. Hannah's disposition has changed. The question is, why? What changed for Hannah? What moved her from sadness to contentment? Now, normally we might expect such a change to result after someone gets what they want, what they asked for. Typically, we would anticipate Hannah's demeanor and outlook on life to shift if and when she gets pregnant after she has birthed a child. And yet, before Hannah receives any promise of a son, before discovering whether or not God would answer her prayer, Hannah is restored and renewed, joyful enough to re-engage her marriage and her community. For Hannah, nothing has changed in terms of what she wants or desires. What has changed for Hannah is she realizes all that she needs, her identity, her sense of self, her true source of security and joy is in her relationship with God. The rest of this story is very much worth reading, but it's not the focus of this particular message. Still, Here's a quick recap of the rest of the things that take place in this passage. God answers Hannah's prayer, and sometime later on, she bears a son. Hannah names her son Samuel. And once Samuel is weaned, Hannah brings Samuel to Eli at the tabernacle in Shiloh and dedicates him to the Lord's service, just as she promised. And as Hannah releases her son into God's hands, she prays a beautiful and memorable prayer or song of thanksgiving at the start of chapter 2. Again, to reinforce this crucial shift in Hannah's life perspective that I pointed to earlier, notice this prayer is more than just a song of thanksgiving for the birth of her son Samuel. It is more broadly a song of thanksgiving for Yahweh, for God, the God who is in our lives and the God who is working in this world. In many ways, Hannah's prayer prophetically anticipates many of the themes we will encounter through the rest of First and Second Samuel. Hannah's song, in fact, will become a repeated chorus throughout the scriptures. It will serve as the inspiration for what is known as the Magnificat, the spirit-inspired song of Mary that was uttered by her in the midst of her pregnancy with Jesus. Declaring God's care for and uplifting of the hungry, the empty, and the vulnerable, while also proclaiming the Lord's judgment and humbling of those who arrogantly boast in their own power, who oppose God's way of treating other people, Hannah's song expresses a manner of leadership and governance that is contrary to the world's expectations. It is not by strength that one prevails, Hannah sings, but only by the power of God. We prevail and our leaders succeed only insofar as we remember where our true life and strength comes from. Now, at first glance, it may seem odd that what is supposed to be an account of the rise and unification of a nation of people should begin with this seemingly random personal story of a depressed woman mourning over her empty womb. However, 
What we need to understand is Hannah's infertility mirrors the barrenness of Israel at this point in history. We're going to dig more into this background later, but suffice to say, Israel right now is bereft by social, political, and economic difficulties. Less of a nation and more of a fragile confederacy of 12 individual tribes, Israel's future right here is questionable, as violent political division and economic difficulty mark day-to-day life. There is widespread religious corruption and spiritual apathy rampant as well. Therefore, the road ahead for Israel is unknown and uncertain, appearing more barren, more like a dead end than any sort of path forward. I think the chaos of this moment in the history of Israel at this time is perhaps best reflected in the very last line of the historical book that precedes 1 Samuel, the book of Judges. Here's that scripture. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does this sound eerily familiar to anyone else? The last line of the book of Judges hints at the solution the people of Israel perceive as the answer to all their problems. They just need a king like all the other nations, and then everything will get resolved. The people will all come together. Spoiler alert here and hang on to this one. The revelation of First and Second Samuel is not that the people need a king. They already have a king. The people don't need a new, better, worldly leader. The people just need to recognize and follow their one true leader, the best leader we all have, God. Clearly, given the events of this past week, let alone this whole election cycle, we in America, at least, still haven't learned this lesson. In our current political climate, too many Christians in both political parties remain convinced that our problems will be solved and God's agenda for all people will be realized if we only elect the right candidate, if we only have the right person in office. Too many professed followers of Jesus not only live out of, but themselves perpetuate a doomsday-like fear if the wrong political candidate is elected. And underneath all of this, underneath Israel's desire for a worldly king, underneath our fervor over electing the right political candidate, underneath all of this is our longing for power, the means to get what we want, the ability to control our own destiny. In our personal lives, when our hopes are crushed, when our dreams remain unrealized, when we experience loss, or when we face confusion about the future, our identity, Our sense of self, our sense of purpose, and our security about the future can become wrapped up in what we don't have, in what we lack. And in response, our temptation is to work harder, right? To beg, to borrow, to steal. Either in the frantic persistence to to make whatever it is we've decided will complete us happen. Or in our perpetual state of despair and bemoanment, our belief that our life is meaningless or over we can lose ourselves in self-destruction. And that kind of self-destruction fractures rather than builds community. We've seen that on display this week, haven't we? And in response to this great temptation that will be given into by Israel that threatens to bring us down both individually and collectively as a nation, we have the simple but insightful story of Hannah, a weary and disheartened woman who confronts her powerlessness by turning to the only one who is powerful, the creator and sustainer of all life, the Lord and savior of all that is good. Hannah's prayer 
is if nothing else an admission of her impotence, an acknowledgement that she can do nothing to open her womb, that only the Lord can open such doors. Hannah makes no claim. Hannah doesn't boast of being owed anything. Hannah asserts no capacity of her own. All Hannah expresses is a stubborn insistence in the goodness of Yahweh, of the God who sees, the God who remembers, the God who moves and acts, and in response for being able to experience the touch, the movement, the work of the Lord in her life, Hannah further avows to keep nothing for herself, but to offer everything back to, the God, to God, even her own son. My friends, the point of this story is not to be like Hannah. Please don't walk away with that. The point of this story is to come to perceive, to understand what Hannah discovers. That we all, while we all have very real wants and desires, the only one we need The only true life and salvation we have is in our relationship with God. The story of Hannah is a reminder that God comes to the rescue of those truly in need, helping not those who help themselves, but helping those who cannot help themselves. While God loves and reaches out to all people, the Lord's partiality in Scripture is towards the poor and the needy, towards those who acknowledge their poverty and their powerlessness, their need for Him. This is the Lord's partiality because only those who confess their absolute dependence upon Him, their complete reliance upon His grace, only those can truly receive and abide in His presence, His power, His leading of their lives. Will we make that confession? Will we utter that prayer? Only God can transform barrenness to fruitfulness, mourning to dancing, death to life. My friends, only God can create a new historical possibility where none exists. Only God in Christ is the one who walks out of a barren tomb. What is for anyone else an insurmountable dead end, bringing the resurrection of hope and the promise of a new beginning? Just as the word of God brought light and hope to Hannah's life, My friends, the Word of God remains the answer to the crises we are facing today. 1 Samuel 2 is the last word we hear of Hannah in the Scriptures. But the story of her transformation endures as a beacon of hope for all who feel isolated and alone, for all who find themselves misunderstood and abused, for all who have nothing but a profound awareness of their helplessness for all who in response throw themselves unabashedly on the mercy and compassion of the God who is powerful where we are powerless. The God who is good, the God who sees, the God who remembers, the God who moves and acts for our good always. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.